0: If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams.
1: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together.
3: economic indicators who knows where this is going
0: to end up to understand the economy you have to understand human nature
3: this podcast is powered by Acast.
0: how are you doing there it is the podcast with a difference because now the podcast is coming from this extraordinary building this
3: amazing i love this will we change the locks move in (laughs) This would be just a brilliant HQ for us. Get out of the basement. We could get out of the basement. The basement's got its own
0: vibe. It's got its own vibe. It's only, Anyway, the podcast is coming today from the Dorky Book Festival. John and I are going to be talking about MMT based on an amazing book by Stephanie Kelton, Professor Stephanie Kelton, called The Deficit Myth. If you have not read it, go out and read it. It will change your view about economics so we're going to talk to stephanie from the united states for the first half of the podcast then john and i are going to riff a wee bit and then we're going to go down to the southern hemisphere to the global south and talk to marla ducaran because if there is a revolution about to happen in economics it will play out differently as all revolutions do whether it's in the north or in the south so that's what we're going to do that's the podcast anyway let's go straight to the states and talk to Stephanie. Stephanie how are you? I'm
1: great. How are you both?
0: We are in great. flying form. We're really in good form. Really in good form and uh, we are on the final day of a three-day book festival which has been fantastic. We interviewed Bernie Sanders on Friday. We introduced our own president last night and now I want to talk about your book The Deficit Myth and what is in effect a revolution in economic thinking and you're at the vanguard Stephanie. Now, tell me, in as brief as you can, explain the thesis, the thesis on what's going on, because we know that Joe Biden is implementing something that's very, very similar to what's in the book. So tell us all about it.
1: Okay. Well, so the thesis is basically the book is called The Deficit Myth, which is singular. I wish that there was only one myth about uh, public spending and uh, public deficits, but there aren't. There are a lot of different myths and misunderstandings, and what the book tries to do is to sort of myth bust one at a time through the chapters. So the place that I start in the book is with a chapter called Don't Think of a Household, because this is probably the most pernicious myth of all. It is everywhere, right? Whether it is in uh, the pages of the, you know, newspapers and magazines that we read on the television shows, and maybe the podcasts not this one, uh, but others that you might listen to, where we are asked to think of the government's finances the way we think of our own personal finances, right? We all know that we can't spend more than we take in. We can't continue to borrow and take on more debt, we run the risk of defaulting on debts, going broke, becoming bankrupt, and so forth, then we're told that the same sort of thing can happen to a government if it doesn't manage its finances very judiciously. And so what I do in the book is start there with this premise and and help the reader understand the difference between a currency-issuing government- like mine here in the US, like the UK, like Australia or Japan, many others. Um, The difference between a currency issuing government and currency users like households, like uh, private businesses, like state and local governments here in the US, or the countries that adopted the Euro uh, across the Eurozone. So there is a different degree of freedom when you control your own currency. Your spending capacity is very different. You can afford to buy whatever is available and for sale in your currency. You don't face a hard budget constraint. What matters are the real resource constraints in the economy. There is a supply or a capacity constraint. And the punishment for overspending is inflation, not bankruptcy for a nation like I just described. So, Stephanie, why
0: for so long have economists readily traded the language of household accountancy? You know, the Mrs. Thatcher, well, there's like taxpayers' money and there's only such a pool of money. And then when you run out of that money, you can't print use anymore why do you think economists have allowed ourselves our profession to be suckered into a narrative that you believe doesn't really give a proper reflection on the world
1: hmm. it's such an important and good question and i don't know that there's one answer to it david i think that different economists have different motivations. And I think that many economists simply do believe that there is no public money, as Thatcher said, that somehow the government really is financially constrained. And few economists take the time to really get into the financial plumbing, to examine and study the monetary system and the way that that money works, that a sovereign currency works. And that's at the core of MMT. So we got deep in the weeds in this stuff, but you know, you will. Often hear economists sort of quietly whisper to other economists that the money question is something you simply don't touch, not if you want to be taken seriously as an economist. The, you leave the money question aside, that only leads to trouble, stay focused on you know, empirical models and, and avoid talking about the complicating details of the financial system and so forth. So the other part of it is that You know, economists serve very often a a useful role in terms of policy advising. And what policy advisors often do is look to economists to tell them what they want to hear. And when politicians want to hear that, you know, they need to manage their finances like a household, reduce deficits, avoid spending more on education or healthcare or infrastructure. And economists can be very useful because they can say, Well, I've asked the top experts in the world, and they've told us that we can't afford to do these things, and we need to. You know, we've got this deficit and this debt, and these. This is where our attention needs to be. You
0: know what the amazing thing is. You know, for most people who are not economists, and we'll give up this conversation about the the little interreligious dilemmas, the catechism of economics. For most people, economics is money. So if you take money out of the equation, people are like, "Well, what's the bloody point?" You know, that's what we're trying to talk about. Let Let me get back to the to the nitty gritty. So what you're saying is that if you really think about it. The government can issue IOUs, little pieces of paper. They give them to the central bank. The central bank gives the government real currency, like dollars, in return. And the government goes out and spends it. That's how the system works. And there's no absolute figure that says you can do this, you can't do this. It basically is a flow of this new currency.
1: Well, more or less. I mean, you, you know what you just said is very close to what Alan Greenspan said decades ago. There's a video of this out there, and so if people are interested in seeing it, you can put uh, Alan Greenspan into the Google machine alongside the word consolidated government, and you'll get this video. And what Greenspan said is says in that video. I think I can quote it. He said, "The federal government can essentially run any deficit it wants." simply by printing bonds and making sure that they sell in the marketplace. Then he went on to say a really important part, which is, and we are involved in that process, which is when the plumbing is examined closely, what that means is the Federal Reserve backstops this marketplace where those bonds are taken up. And so effectively, it means that whatever Congress commits to spending, the Financial infrastructure exists to ensure that the payments will always go out, the checks will never bounce, and the government can afford to fund whatever it deems a priority, whether it's fighting a health pandemic or repairing crumbling infrastructure, providing health care, the system is set up to allow the government to spend money it does not have in effect.
0: Now, now, when you look at Washington and you look at Joe Biden, because the promise of MMT—I mean, there the, there is an extraordinary promise here, which is not just to build back better, but to build a hell of a lot, a hell of a lot better, and to use money in order to suggest that the constraint is in people's heads rather than in people's pockets. And Biden is kind of
1: moving in that direction rapidly. Is he? Uh, This is probably the question or the proposition that I get most often now, and I'm not so sure. Uh, You know, before Biden was elected, we, of course, had Donald Trump and we had the coronavirus hit. So March of last year we had Congress taking very swift and I would say bold action in the form first of a piece of legislation called the CARES Act, where all of a sudden $2.2 trillion was conjured into existence because Congress said we got to act and we got to help you know uh, small businesses and, and unemployed and so forth and so on. So we got $2.2 trillion, just a clean spending bill. Nobody paused to argue how are we going to pay for it, whose taxes need to go up and all that. Then in December of the same year, we got another. Another $800 billion. Also, now, you know, Biden had won but wasn't yet president. Then Biden becomes president. March of this year, we get a third package, this $1.9 trillion COVID rescue package. Again, no pay force, no question about taxes going up to offset the spending so that it wouldn't add to the deficit. But Things are different now, David, and this is what's really important. The next round of spending that the Biden administration is looking to move through Congress is all quote unquote paid for. The administration is saying we don't want to continue doing it the way we did the previous packages. This time, we want to try to spend money on the Build Back Better agenda, but we don't want the result to be an increase in deficit spending. Therefore, we have a proposal to generate all the revenue to offset the spending so that it will be deficit neutral. Now that ain't MMT. That's not how an MMT economist like myself would approach this. An MMT economist would approach it with a focus on keeping the spending inflation neutral, not deficit neutral. And as you probably uh, are aware, we are having an extremely difficult time here in the US collecting the votes that are necessary to pass the next uh, round of infrastructure spending. And this pay for debacle is really hamstringing the, the agenda right now. We'll have to see how it plays out, but I don't think that the current approach is really very compatible with MMT. It is a bit, there is there is a bit.
0: So what you're saying is now we're back to this idea that the currency is the vote and it's how do you get the Congress to vote? It's interesting, I talked to Bernie, Bernie Sanders, you were Bernie's economic advisor. I talked to him on Friday and he was quite excited about the prospect of getting all this stuff through, but they're back now to haggling. So what you're saying, they've left MMT intellectually behind, and they're now back to the idea that if we don't have the money, we can't spend it.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, they're playing a little fast and loose. So they've left MMT rhetorically behind in the sense that they want to present this program as something that is paid for. The reality, though, is the budget that the administration, that the Biden administration just released a week and a half or so ago, their very own budget calls for uh, $6 trillion in spending over the next fiscal year, they say that the deficit next year will be $1.8 trillion, And they say that deficits over the next decade will average $1.3 trillion, And they say the debt to GDP ratio uh, by the end of the decade will be 117%. In other words, the whole thing, when you examine it and they tell you what it will do, it will um, result in Persistent deficits, a rise in the debt to GDP ratio. A lot of the revenue that they're talking about getting comes after the ten-year window, so it it is uh, there is deficit spending yeah, in it. Just the messaging is kind of well, we're going to do the spending over eight years, but we're going to bring in revenue over fifteen. So it's sort of paid for in a way that we don't usually pay for things, but nevertheless, it's paid for.
0: But it's very much part of your idea that you've got to get your head around the notion that it's not tax first, spend later. It's spend first, tax later. And that's where they're moving.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah. Okay. That's, I think that's a very fair observation. The the recognition that you don't have to wait on the revenue to actually appear, that you can commit the spending, commit the funding, spend the money, get the repairs to infrastructure and move uh, to advance where we are with human infrastructure and so forth. And you don't have to worry about matching dollar for dollar in real time. Uh, the whole program. So sure, I, I think that's right.
0: Now, it's interesting. John had a question. We we're talking. John had a question for you about, I, I think, what, what was... John, what you were... I,
3: yeah, t- Stephanie, you know, in, in general, the law of unintended consequences applies to most economic stuff, in fact, to life in general. But I was kind of wondering, how would MMT play out under the law of unintended consequences? What, what might happen
1: well, I don't know uh, how to answer <laughs> well, the question. Because here's the problem with the, I'll tell yeah. you, to, to be honest, there's a problem with the way you're asking the question because MMT is not a set of policy proposals. It's not a pre-packaged set of here, implement this, this is MMT. MMT is a an analytic framework. Okay, so you don't, what are the consequences of a better understanding of how the monetary system works, the limits of government finance? Well, the consequences, there are no consequences from an understanding. What can happen is with a clearer understanding of the mechanics and the limits and so forth. Congress can make better decisions, take fuller advantage of the fiscal space that's available. But Republicans might take fuller advantage of fiscal space by doing, you know, bigger tax cuts for the wealthy, sure. that, that sort of thing. Democrats might take advantage of that analytical framework in that fiscal space saying, oh, great, we can do infrastructure and education and housing and healthcare. And so the consequences follow from the policy choices, but the policy choices themselves are not... MMT prescribed. Right, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's
3: not so clear cut.
0: Stephanie, let's look at inflation. Uh, It's interesting, every single headline, even if you see a tiny nudge up in the rate of inflation in any index right now, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times are blaring inflation around the corner. And that's obviously your, your argument, which is that You wait and you see, and if there's inflation coming around the corner, well, then you decide to hold on a second. Now we're going to tax and take money out of the economy. What's your sense of where the U.S. economy is with respect to inflation? Because I suppose that is the acid test.
1: Yeah, so what we're seeing right now are pressures in a in a wide range of areas. Apparel is up sharply in this monthly print that we just got earlier this morning. Used car prices continue to be very high, and that's pushing the headline inflation figure higher. But we understand, you know, what's happening in a lot of these cases. Semiconductors, right? We know that there's a shortage with chips, and we know that this is producing backlogs in terms of manufacturing new automobiles. So people are turning to users. Used cars and that's pushing used car prices up. And so I guess my position really is that I find myself very closely aligned with Fed Chair Powell, who says, you know, we've never been here before. And a lot of weird things are going to happen. Airline prices, hotel prices, we're seeing this. There are some issues in the labor market. And so we, you know, we're going to see maybe some wage pressure in pockets in different industries and so forth. But I think the word transitory is being used a lot and I think it's appropriate. I think that for the most part, markets are gonna work these shortages out that you know, supply will adjust and will overcome some of these bottlenecks that are giving rise to some inflationary pressures. I do not believe that we have that we are at real risk of the kind of inflationary dynamics that took hold in the 1970s that somebody like Larry Summers is kind of warning about i don't see the potential uh, or a, or a significant potential for that kind of you know entrenched inflationary pressure to to really take hold here wage price spirals and the like yeah the 1970s cuz what you're
0: saying and i think it's i think it's accurate is that we're moving from a covid paralyzed economy to an economy that is beginning to kick into gear. Now, what will always happen, even if you think if you're you're running gigs or whatever, if you say, well, maybe we put the prices up a bit because we lost lots of money last year and we'll see what happened. And we don't know if we're going to fill the hall or not. If you think about the psychology of inflation, right, it's all about power in the market. If you feel you've got some power, you you push up prices. But that idea that the economy was stuck and broken and traumatized, and now it's kind of alive well, you're going to get mistakes. You're going to get increases in this, that, and the other. Can I ask you before you go about the, not uniqueness of the United States, but the uniqueness of those countries that you identified that have this extraordinary triumvirate of possibilities, countries that can issue their own currency, that can choose when they pay the money back, and can choose the price to which they may pay the money back. I mean, these are the three things that we gave away as Eurozone countries, amazing latitude when you can say, I'm going to borrow money from you in my own currency. I'm going to figure out who I pay it back to and when, and you know what? I'm going to figure out the price, right? So that makes America unique in in this case. How, when when you look at our benighted Eurozone and the Euros in our back pocket, right? How different are we to you at this stage with respect to MMT in terms of possibilities?
1: Well, so the currency issuer for the Eurozone is the central bank, right? Is the ECB. And as long as the currency issuer is prepared to step up and play that role as the backstop, which is what Alan Greenspan talked about, right? The Fed backstops the primary dealer market, which facilitates the whole, you know, spending program. So as long as the ECB is prepared to backstop the project, then you really can effectively restore a high degree of freedom, right? Of fiscal freedom, of of flexibility on the fiscal side, which is exactly what's happened in the wake of the pandemic. Of course, you know, Christine Lagarde initially said it's not the job of the ECB to manage spreads. Spreads were starting to, to, you know, widen and blow out a little bit. And that was a very quickly walk back. And the ECB, I think, has done a pretty beautiful job through the pandemic. Holding rates down. I, I looked uh, earlier today. I think at the at the Greek ten-year. Look at the Italian ten-year. You would never have rates where rates are uh, across the eurozone right now, but for the pandemic emergency purchasing program and the role of the ECB in holding those yields down. So you know the question is, I, I guess, uh, for how much longer? And you're already hearing rattlings from the Germans, well, right? That, um, well, always,
0: I always think when the Germans start rattling, it's a good sign. It means you're doing a good thing. And when Wolfgang Schaubler comes up and says, this is not good, we should give a big round of applause to everybody amen. in the opposition. I think he's, a, he's, the, he's the canary in the coal mine for economic how, kind of a Luddism. It's kind of a Luddite approach. It's a, it's, it's a pre-technology approach. But before you go, we're going to be talking to Marla Dukaran down in Trinidad. And you know Marla. Speak to me about the dilemma. And I know that Martine Lustow was talking to you from Argentina. So a lot of our friends from the Latin American world are looking with great envy now at yeah. what the United States can do. What What does it do to the poorer countries if the richer countries can actually spend their way out of this?
1: Well, so a couple of things. One is that we have seen some of the growth forecasts, right? With the release of the Biden American Jobs and Families Plans and this proposal to commit some $4 trillion or so to investments here in the US, there's a pretty clear understanding that there are positive externalities for the rest of the world. If we succeed in moving a piece of legislation through Congress, and we get that here, there are going to be spillover benefits for countries in other parts of the world, including countries like those that you named and other emerging markets and so forth. So there can be some very good things. Obviously, I know there's more the international community could do by way of direct aid to help countries you know make the kinds of investments whether we're talking about climate or health But it is for many countries around the world that are saddled with significant debt-denominated in foreign currencies that don't have energy independence, food independence, that are vulnerable to swings in the exchange rate that could leave them importing essential things like medicines and technologies, energy at much higher prices. You can very quickly get into trouble importing significant inflation, and so I think It's a long-term project for many countries to develop industries domestically to, you know, claw back some flexibility in terms of fiscal policy to get some monetary sovereignty under their belts. But in the interim, there's a lot that the richer countries around the world can do to help them.
0: But I think uh, before you go, the first, the proof of the pudding, as they say, will be in the vaccines. That'll be the first idea as to where the rich world Stephanie, as always, brother which which world is actually prepared to help the poor world? Stephanie, as always, I've always said the most unlikely leader of the revolution, sometimes softly spoken, always measured, never radical. but, as I was saying, the book is fantastic. It'll really change the way you think about economics. if, like me, you were you learned your economics over the last few decades. Then it's a real eye opener, and the author is Stephanie Kelton. So, Stephanie, thank you so
3: Thanks, much. Thanks, Stephanie. I'll talk
0: to you thank soon. You,
1: thank you, David.
3: Let me ask a quick technical question before okay, we go in. Okay, go for it. She talked Cause about You know, techni- technicalities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm they, they, so good at- they go over my head. Yeah, yeah. Go for it. Go for
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> You're, I'm Inflation glad they go over I'm glad they kind of go over your head. You. <laughs> I
3: have to keep you grounded, Mac. You know. I Come know. On. I know. Go, Inflation go neutral versus deficit neutral. Okay. What is all that about? Right.
0: So it's good question. Good question. Good question. Unlike my last one. <laughs> Listen, uh, so what you said, so deficit neutral is you have a government borrowing policy yeah. that at the end of the day will make no difference to the deficit. So what it means is we're going to borrow 100 quid, But we're going to raise 100 quid in taxes so you don't expand the deficit. So she's saying that's the old way of thinking about economics, that the deficit is key. What she's saying, the new way to think about it, which is actually an old, new way, if you know what I mean, it's Mm. been thought about years ago, is that if the policy is inflation neutral, so if you borrow 100 euros and you put that into the economy and the aggregate price level doesn't increase, so the price of cars, the price of airline tickets, the price of food doesn't increase then you have an inflation-neutral policy. And we need to switch for an obsession about deficit neutrality, where we're obsessing about a figure at the end of the year, which is 10 million or 2 million or 3 million. That's the usual way. Yeah, she's saying, don't worry about that. What you need to worry about is inflation neutrality. So if you borrow that 100 euros, and suddenly your rate of inflation is going up by 10%, Mm. then you've got a problem. Then you cut back. So that's the technicality. That's the difference. But inflation is happening, though. Well, what she's, say, what she's saying is it's temporary. She's saying that it's actually a function of the fact... She also
3: fact. said they're flying by the seat of their pants, so they don't know.
0: Well, they don't know. And the problem, my, my view is if inflation rises, then stop. And it'll fall. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 other, yeah. It, it hasn't got an inbuilt dynamic. One of the historical problems in the 1970s was all economists were trying to come up with like, how the hell is inflation rising and rising and rising? And what happened was it came up with this idea called the rational expectations hypothesis, right? The rational, like, really fancy. And mangling of the language, which is (laughs) typical. Like, we spent the whole weekend talking the beauty of language, you know, and Joyce, and also carry on. And then we... And then economists come in. we might say rational expectations hypothesis, right? But what it actually means is that... People are completely rational. Actually, what it means is you can't pull the wool over people's eyes Right. hypothesis, right? Right. That's a much better way of saying it, right? So it's basically saying to you, look, if you get a wage increase of 10%, right, but prices are already increasing by 10%, then your wage increase in real terms is zero. Yeah. It's wiped out, okay? Now, the economists sort of came up with this idea that The whole world is absolutely rational and we all discount our wages and every time we get paid, we figure out how much is that going to cost us. People don't think like that, right? So economists tend to give to humans supernormal powers that evidently don't exist on the one hand, but also take away from humans quite obvious powers that do exist, like the fact that we are irrational and we're all... Sometimes get giddy and whatever. Yeah, yeah. So the rational expectations hypothesis said you cannot pull the wool over people's eyes ever. Now that's not true. But Absolutely. the key thing, the key thing is that if the MMTers are wrong, it's not really a big deal. Because then we just go back to where
3: we were. It's like a lot of things like, but is it not like a big like super tanker where you know you make a few policy choices and off it goes, and then you say, oh well, we we'll just stop. Well, you can't stop a super tanker. It takes a while it takes, for it to turn around.
2: Yeah,
0: and, yeah, no. They get stuck I, turning I, around like a And I, the next our mate, Andy <laughs> Halding, yeah. was writing last week in the Wall Street Journal. And he's now leaving the Bank of England. And he says the same thing. So you are at one with the chief economist of the well, Bank well, of England, John. you know? <laughs> and Andy like this. And he's saying the same thing that basically, you know, be careful. Yeah. You know, what's definitely. And you, you can say, well, maybe because Andy, Andy's in the job. Mm. He's a little bit worried. But what Stephanie's saying is that there is a profound misunderstanding of the way the economy works, and we've got to appreciate that. And the interesting thing is, if you go back into history, J.M. Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, yeah. the great Keynes, was saying something the same in the 30s. He was saying classical economics that everybody learned in Victorian ages and in the early Edwardian, yeah, the early part yeah. of the century. He said, is actually wrong, and here is why. To quote J.M.
3: (laughs) Exactly. And here's why. Here's
0: why. And it took a while for that to percolate down, but then became dogma. The great thing, it's like all religions, John, right? Is that you have the dogma and then you have the anti-dogma, right? You have the thesis and the antithesis, and ultimately you get the synthesis. You know,
3: this is a bit of... (sighs) You're getting all highfalutin now. All
0: highfalutin. The thesis, the antithesis, and the synthesis. And I think we can get a synthesis yeah. in the next 10 years somewhere in the middle. So, John, it's interesting talking there to Stephanie Kelton because although there is some, not suspicion, but scepticism about MMT, it means something for rich countries, yeah. right? Because we have these currencies that people want to use, but if you go down south, to the mm. global south, you end up with a totally different set of constraints, a totally different set of realities. And so let's go down yeah. to the Caribbean, to the global south, and talk to our old mate, Marla Dukaran. Marla, Fantastic. how are you? Are you there? There hey, Marla. You are. There you are. <laughs>
2: Hi guys. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. I'm so excited to be at my very first book festival.
0: <laughs> I know what you've got to come in the flesh next year. John's going to do
3: carnival. I'm going to see a swap. We'll do some sort of swap. Yeah.
0: We'll <laughs> give you the Dorky Book Festival. You give us Mardi Gras. Yeah. Who, who's that, doing best out of this gig?
3: I've, I'm up for that.
2: Uh, you guys have a deal. Uh, we'll do that exchange and I'll see you in Jamaica in April next year. How about I that? I would love that. John, in, I, Kingston. Sort of. in
0: Kingston. In Kingston. Well, you're going to have to look after us poor whiteies. Remember you said of to me the,
2: the time I was in
0: Port of Spain and I texted you and I said... I'm going to go for a walk outside the hotel. And Marta texts me back and she goes, no. And I said, why? She goes, you too
2: white. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm tearing my hair out like, oh my God, he's going to get kidnapped.
0: (laughs) So how are you anyway? Are you in good form?
2: I am. It's hot here in Barbados, um, but lovely and very, very blessed and grateful to be here because we, you know, we have the pandemic under control Much unlike my home country in Trinidad and Tobago. But, um, you know, we find all kinds of varieties here in this region. We're we're anything but homogenous. I know everybody Uh -uh. thinks we are all the same, but we're not.
0: And tell me, are things bad in Trinidad?
2: Oh, it's so bad. I mean, their borders have been closed for over a year. Um, Their infection rate actually rivals India. You just knock three zeros off India's rate because Trinidad is one4 million india is 1.4 billion
0: yeah and
2: um and when you compare it we have in trinidad a higher infection rate than india and we just yesterday crossed 600 fatalities due to the pandemic why
3: is that was it a different kind of lockdown or or people ignoring it or what what was the story
2: well like most things in life john it's (laughs) multifactorial right Right. indeed (laughs) First of all, in my humble opinion, and of course somebody is going to send a bullet for me just now, but you know there's a leadership vacuum in my opinion in Trinidad and Tobago. You know our prime minister first got up some months ago and said we're not begging nobody for no vaccine, (laughs) and then a little while later you had little countries like Bermuda and Grenada sending whatever 50 vaccines they could spare to Trinidad and Tobago because we had no vaccines in the pipeline. So that's the first thing. The leadership did not, in my view, address the pandemic properly. Mm. But also Trinidad has a huge illegal migrant flow from Venezuela because as you all know, Venezuela has been imploding for what a decade. (laughs) It's the longest implosion probably ever in history. And so you have all of these illegal migrants who have nowhere to go. They go to Venezuela, they go, sorry, they go to Colombia, they go to Brazil, Guyana, Suriname and Trinidad and Tobago, which is only six miles away by sea. So, they are part of the, the reason why you've had the spread of the virus that is uncontrollable mm. right now in Trinidad. And
0: tell me, just before we go back to the Caribbean, what is Latin America in general? Because mm-hmm. you're right on the cusps, you're right, well, you guys are right on the top of Latin America. What's your sense of what's happening there? Because we hear that Brazil, it's not just oh. COVID, it's just everything seems to be. Well, the it's the direction. leadership,
2: right? Isn't everything Bolsonaro? is a, He's a disaster. He's a lunatic. So, yeah, he is. So, I mean, everything stems from that. So I would say to you that there are some countries in, in Latin America that have done pretty well. Um, there are some countries in the Caribbean who have done remarkably well in controlling the pandemic. I always talk about the Cayman. Right now in Cayman, they don't even wear their masks. They're having carnival in August. Hopefully I'll make it. I don't know. <laughs> uh, they have a two week quarantine. They, you know, and everybody, life is back to normal there, except there's no tourists, but you know, it's, it's a, it's a variety. It's a wide spectrum. There are some countries like Brazil, um, like Trinidad and Tobago, where this has been completely mismanaged. And then you have on the other extreme Cayman, and then you have countries in the middle like Jamaica and Barbados, Dominica, small countries that have been able to contain it. And we can pretty much, like kids are in school and you can go to work and things
0: like that. So, Marla, I want to ask you about big economics. We just had Stephanie talking about MMT, Stephanie Kelton, who you know well. The G seven met last week. You know, very much the club of you know, it's the richest club in the world. So, Might is
2: right. <laughs> yeah, and so
0: and you have a, you have a serious problem with this. Tell me what your problem is with G seven, with G seven policies, with that G seven sort of swagger that we see, you know, twice a year, every year?
2: Well, for us, it's all neo-colonial, right? And maybe not even neo, maybe it has always been there. And so, you know, when the G7 get together and they decide that they want to implement this um, global minimum tax rate of 15%, it used to be 21 and a half, I think they first said. And, you know, you have, first of all, you have pushback from countries like Hungary, Poland, and of course, Ireland. Yep. Uh, the unfortunate thing for us is that we, we have no clout. We have no weight. We have no currency. You spoke about currency mm. <laughs> that we can push back. And so we just get told by the ED7s, the OECDs, the FATFs, the EUs, you have to do this because you small and you black and you poor, so you don't have a say. But then what happens is, and I think this is exactly what's going to happen, and Ireland is a perfect case in point. You can have a headline tax rate of fifteen percent imposed on on European countries, on G7s, on G20s, and then you have all of your subsidies and concessions under the table in there, and then your effective tax rate is what, David, seven? What's yours? Maybe in about seven.
0: List? Yeah, maybe seven. Right. You yeah. see.
2: We can't do that because then you come with this magnifying glass and you say what foolishness you little people doing or oh, you Oompa Loompas doing over there. You can't do that, <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna blacklist you, and then you get you know all your correspondent banking cut, all of your aid, and all your you know it's it's it. And I think that um, that's really Janet Yellen said it. She said the reason for this is so that we do not have jobs leaving and going to other countries overseas. That is the raison d'etre of this tax. And so it's about competitiveness. That's what it's about. And we are so small and so constrained, it's hard enough for us to compete and then you come and you you do all of this and then.
0: But what about the, the Yanks who say, hold on a second, the money has been spent in the United States. The money comes from the United States taxpayers. Why should we give... Some of it to the global south. That's what they're saying. They're saying that it's facilitating tax evasion and tax this and tax that. When you hear that, what do you think?
2: David, it's not give, first of all. The largest tax havens on earth are the G7s and G20 countries, okay? Mm. We might have countries that are tax neutral or zero tax, like Bahamas, um, Bermuda, Cayman, Barbados, we have a 5.5% corporate tax so we're low tax. But the thing is, you don't hear about blacklisting of Delaware, um, of, of Isle of Man, of Guernsey, Jersey, you know, Ireland even, Malta. You don't hear these countries and these territories being blacklisted. You just hear about Cayman and Barbados and Jamaica and Bahamas and Bermuda because it's a might, and if I may say so myself, a white is right mentality and so whatever they can do to marginalize us further is what they continue to do because you have countries that meet the criteria of money laundering for example who launders more money than the Netherlands and Russia and who finances terrorism more than Saudi Arabia and you ever see them in any blacklist no so when I hear those kinds of things I don't want all of my money going in a small country first of all it's this much but you are not also adhering to the same rules. And why is it that some rules apply to us and don't apply to you? That's just unfair.
3: It was interesting, though, that because Stephanie mentioned that in the long run, there would be externalities that everyone would benefit. It's a little bit like the kind of trickle down. Trickle down? Equal, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at
2: her face. Trickle down? Yeah, I down. know. <laughs> David does that work <laughs> <laughs> I know they taught us this in school but no, I don't I know mean, about you the, but the, it doesn't work trickle down yeah. makes
0: lots of rich people lot lot richer and mm-hmm. it doesn't trickle down it doesn't nope. trickle down at all i mean you you've, you've got the you the evidence is overwhelming yeah yeah evidence, but i mean what i want to look at the is, only
2: is, way it trickles down is through inheritance okay yeah that's, right. the that's true, true. Yeah, and, yeah,
0: that, yeah. and then it gushes down that's the thing it doesn't trickle down it goes to the next no but what i want to talk about is the this bigger thing because since the 1960s, we have had discussions about the first versus the third world. Now it's the global north versus the global south. It doesn't matter what label you put on. It's about global inequality where you yep. guys are getting poorer quicker and yep. we are getting richer faster. And that is, that's what's happening. And it doesn't seem to me that no matter what we're talking about, MMT or Joe Biden or the G7, there's any real policy, any real global urgency to try and in some way ameliorate that. We only hear it if there's like mass migration from Africa to Europe. Oh my God, why are these Africans coming here? Or mass migration from the Caribbean or from Latin America to the United States. It's when it becomes an issue politically, that's difficult to absorb. Yeah, yeah. Then we start talking about it. But I mean, Marla, have you any sense, like when you're, you're when you're sitting down there in the global south, that we have any urgency or any care about it? Is that how you guys see it as well?
2: Yeah, and I mean, the only reason that there's urgency now for this global minimum tax, corporate tax, is because, um, you know, as Janet Yellen said, you want to bring jobs back home to the big countries. But the thing is, I, I you know, I think that the big countries don't realize, or maybe they don't want to acknowledge, that when they implement these policies that further marginalize and erode the socioeconomic well-being of small countries, that's what causes people to jump on anything that floats to get to the big countries and the rich countries, because people need to eat and they need to live. And so they, if they can't make a living and survive in their own country, and you create this pariah state either deliberately or accidentally, um, then you create that effect because it's all a, it's all circular, right? Yeah. And yeah. it comes back to bite you. The thing about it is, when you think about small countries and the kinds of disadvantages that we face in terms of climate um, uh, vulnerability, in terms of the constraints we face into, you know, we can't have economies of scale. There is no such thing as economies of scale when you have two to 300,000 people. These kinds of constraints put us at a disadvantage. And it's not that we want a handout and it's not that we want to be treated differently and maybe, you know, too favorably. We just want to be treated equally. Whatever regulations and constraints that you impose on us in terms of taxes, in terms of compliance with money laundering, regulations, and so on. You need to apply these as well to the big countries. Otherwise, what you do is what we have that same WTO situation all over again, where you're not supposed to have these protectionist policies of tariffs and and, and duties and so on. But the big countries subsidize their agriculture sector, their banking sector, their auto sector, everything. And then the small countries can't do that. And so you squeeze us and squeeze us and then we have to leave and come right under your bed as we say in the in, in the caribbean
0: <laughs> and uh, just just before you go Barla, mm-hmm. let's talk about mmt to what extent is mmt at the absolute luxury of the rich country can it be ever implemented in poor countries that have fragile currencies
2: Did you see that El Salvador has decided that they're going to adopt Bitcoin as their legal tender? I saw that. That that just goes to show how much of our monetary policy and currency is really surrendered to the big countries. Because our currencies are soft currencies. Nobody wants to hold them outside of our borders. Even within our borders, if you tell a man, I can pay you in US dollars or euro or yen or Canadian dollars, or I can pay you in TT dollars. You want to guess which one he's going to want? Not TT dollars, (laughs) right? So, uh, or Trinidad dollars or Jamaican dollars or any other currency. It is only valid within our borders and we cannot print because then we end up like Venezuela and Zimbabwe. That's economics 101. And we learned this, you know, at the get-go. So we can't do these things. And, and dropping interest rates just means that you have even more of an incentive to hold foreign currency where you might get a return.
3: How do you think adopting the Bitcoin in El Salvador, how do you think that's going to play out? And are others going to follow that in the region?
2: Well, You know, it's really something I've been trying to wrap my head around. El Salvador is a dollarized country. So they already use the US dollar as their own currency. They don't have their own currency. And so it means that they've already exported monetary policy and exchange rate policy. But when you want to use a a cryptocurrency as your own legal tender, it means everybody has to be on a device. Like You have to have a a mobile wallet to use And, and insofar as there is a digital divide, which there is in poor countries more so than big con- than rich countries, and El Salvador is a poor country, how many people really can have access to a, a you know a Bitcoin wallet? I think that there is a segment of the population that will be able to use it, and maybe what they will do is continue to benchmark everything in U.S. dollars because Bitcoin changes in value, you know, every minute. Yeah. So. To, I, I, would, I would imagine they would have to continue pricing everything in US dollars. And so the settlement of the transaction will be in Bitcoin on using a, a mobile wallet. But again, that's for people who have mobile wallets. What about the elderly? What about yeah. the poor? You know, I think it's going to probably marginalize more people. But when you think about why would El Salvador do this? The reason is because when you have big countries that blacklist and otherwise restrict our access to trade and settlement means, so like SWIFT and correspondent banking and so on with the whole de-risking we've had to deal with, then these countries have to find other ways of transacting cross-border and within their own borders. And so that blacklisting, which has I suppose the stated reason is that we want you to comply. The effect that it has is it forces you underground. It forces you into cash and it forces you into cryptocurrencies and alternative means of settlement. And so it it defeats the whole purpose. And again, isolates us, marginalizes us and creates pariah states. I think that's a really
0: fascinating interpretation of why you would go down the crypto route. Because again, it's this whole idea that if the avenue the normal avenue is closed off, well, then you do the weird thing, yeah,
3: you know, yeah, and yeah. going yeah. on
0: Bitcoin is a weird thing yeah, to do absolutely. It's a really weird thing to do. It may well look in twenty years' time as the most inspired thing in the world, but the jury is really out mm. on this stuff really, really and, out and on
2: in this the stuff. caribbean it's it's not unusual to have money moving around on boats. Because it's easier that way than to use the banking channel. Yeah, money has to move sometimes on boats. <laughs> because <laughs> if I if I have to send money to Antigua and it takes five days and it costs a hundred dollars, but I know a guy who's a fisherman who's going there and I can just give him an envelope. Why not?
0: And that's how M- that's how Mpesa started in Kenya. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. because yeah. people were sending money from Nairobi out to the countryside, yeah. and what was happening is the bus driver became the bandit.
3: Yeah. Because he'd say, I'll take, and he'd you, take his I'll take
0: you a thousand shillings, but I'm taking a hundred for myself, yeah. and then mama is going to have 900. Yeah. And then somebody figured out, well, screw him. Yeah. I'm going to give her mobile <laughs> phone credit. And away exactly. you go, yeah. and that's how it changes. Marla, it has been a total pleasure as always John That's has funny. got his feathers on. He's yes. on his way down to Mardi Gras. <laughs> uh, his going.
2: Aztec, his Aztec <laughs> costume. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. His, it's his big.
0: His it's really big. look, and all will be good. <laughs> Listen, Marlon, we'll talk to you soon. That was fantastic. <laughs> Thank Thanks, you so
2: much. You guys have a good time. Yeah, Cheers. see you Cheers. soon.
1: Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince.
0: uh
3: I've got dance moves, everything.
0: We're I'll be Pissarro <laughs> to your quicksackwittal. I'll be the <laughs> killjoy European to your flamboyant. Anyway, what did you
3: make of all that? I, brilliant. I thought. Were, but what is interesting is the fact that the G7 as a whole can spend, 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 and spend their way out of this. Yeah, we can. Whereas, whereas the, the Global South, as you call it, can't, and they're stuck. And it was interesting, I was... Reading something in The Economist there last week about how for every dollar that's spent, that the G7 spent, there's at least another dollar. And in America, obviously, it's a lot more. Whereas in places yeah, like the, the Mexico... Multiplier, the multiplier. The multiplier. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. In Mexico, they're spending 28 cents per dollar. On... So, in other words, there's more austerity. They're oh, going yeah. down the austerity route this, in them because is... they don't have the, the choice. This is the problem is that MM, the promise of MMT for us Mm.
0: is, and could well be, fixing all our problems, the flip side of that for them is because they can't have MMT, because their currencies will actually fall, even against our own currencies that are inflating, they will be obliged to, again by the G7, to impose austerity. So they're going downwards. Yeah. We we're going the other way, and then as Marla says, upshot. and then Marla says, well, then we're just going to get into boats and, yeah. come, and and come under your bed, as she said. That's where <laughs> we're going to end up. So, so you know, it seems to me that from this discussion here, and just and just this podcast, that it evidences again the extraordinary disparities between our part of the world. And the part of the world and that is actually growing in terms of population. Yeah. You know what I mean? In 20 and that's
3: variety is growing. In
0: 2080, four people out of every 10 in this planet will be African. Think about that, right? So the population mm. is growing in the south, it's diminishing up here. We're getting richer, we're not sharing with them. And you know, let's just see, and we'll conclude here that if we end up paying for their vaccines, then The world is moving in the right directions. If we don't, the writing, as you and Marla were saying, is on the wall. Just a quick note to say thank you to all our Patreon supporters. And if you fancy supporting us on Patreon, you can check us out at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams.